Morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Uh, we're delighted today to have three of our own faculty presenting on a wonderful experience, an amazingly powerful experience that they've had in Rwanda. So Steve, Mary, and Kelly will be doing a show for us today. Um, let me tell you a little bit, and I'll be very brief on each of them. They've requested that. Steve is an associate professor of medicine here at Geisel. He's also a visiting professor of internal medicine at the University of Rwanda. Steve went to Middlebury, and he then came to Dartmouth. He went to the then Dartmouth Medical School. He then never left. He stayed to do his internal medicine residency. He did his GI fellowship training here. He was a chief resident here He um, and got, came onto our faculty in 1996. I also decided to tell you a little known fact that he was from the Chatham Township in New Jersey. I went to high school there and they were the gladiators. <laughs> Mary Chamberlain is an associate professor of medicine. Uh, she is also the oncology education advisor for Partners in Health in Rwanda. So you're going to see this connection between Dartmouth and Rwanda. Um, Mary is a graduate of Cornell University, the University of Vermont College of Medicine, and the internal medicine program at the Fletcher Allen Medical Center. Dr. Chamberlain completed her medical oncology fellowship here and joined our faculty in 2006. And I'm told that she went to Penfield High School near Rochester, New York, the former mascot being the Chiefs. They're now called the Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> and Kelly, our assistant professor of medicine, but our own delightful vice chair of education uh, here in our Department of Medicine. Kelly is a graduate of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. She uh, earned her MS in health and medical sciences and an MD from the University of California, Berkeley, uh, UCSF joint medical program. She completed her residency and chief residency here at DHMC and joined our faculty of general internal medicine in the year 2000. And the last little factoid is she went to East Anchorage, Alaska High School, oh, home of the Thunderbirds. <clears throat> okay, Steve, come up and tell us how you're going to do this. There are no conflicts of interest personal to any of the speakers. Kelly has one uh, mate who has a declared uh, uh, affiliation, and no, but no conflict is uh, with that. Thanks, Rich. Um, well, thank you all for coming, and I'd say it's been a pleasure working with Mary and Kelly to get this talk together. Um, our learning objectives today are to describe the purpose and outcomes to date of the Human Resources for Health program in Rwanda, to recognize the impact of institutional and individual engagement in health professions education, and to appreciate the power of partnership to build clinical and professional development capacity in a resource-limited setting. Through a brief outline on how it will work, I'll give a two or three minute introduction uh, to Rwanda and what it was like there before 2012. Um, then Kelly's going to come up and talk about the HRH model for workforce development and then lead into some enduring relationships and projects that have grown out of the HRH program, including our exchange program with the uh, University of Rwanda, Mary's going to talk about oncology clinical programs and training, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, advancing uh, gastroenterology in the country. <clears throat> Rwanda is a spectacularly beautiful country, um, but the beauty belies the fact that life is hard, and being sick in Rwanda is very hard. And this is a quote from Tim Walker, who is a mentor to many of us, an Australian gastroenterologist who spent five or six years in Rwanda and overlapped with our time there. He was an Anglican missionary, but on, on a medical mission. Um, and I think that sums it up pretty well. 
just on a personal note, people ask, how did I get involved in Rwanda? And this is my daughter in northern Togo in Kara with the honey woman who looked after her in her village. And people say, oh, you must be so proud of her because you go to Rwanda. So now she's chosen to pursue a field in, uh, in global health. And she's been, since college, been in Togo for a couple of years and now works for a Togolese NGO advancing care there. But it's actually not like that. When she was getting into um, this field of global health, I had her meet with somebody named Lisa Adams, who's the Dean of Global Health at uh, Dartmouth here and a classmate of mine. And she was counseling Emily on this field of global health and was very generous in her time with her. And she started whispering to Emily, no, I'm, I'm getting this program called HRH and it's going to be in Rwanda. I think it'd be good for your dad to maybe do that. And then so she started whispering to my wife and they kind of conspired that maybe I should go to Rwanda. And I, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm not a tropical medicine guy. What do I know about Rwanda and treating diseases there? And I go, no, you can go and you can do gastroenterology and you can train in GI and help develop the medical students in uh, internal medicine residencies. That's really how I got involved. So it was a flip that they got me involved in this program. A bit on uh, Rwanda. Rwanda is a tiny, tiny country. It's the size of New Hampshire, Vermont, and it lies dead center in the, of the African continent. Um, but though it's small, it's densely packed. There's about 12 and a half million people. The primary language is Kin Rwandan, and everybody speaks Kin Rwandan there, uh, which is different than some other African countries where there's multiple languages and dialects. Like in, in the DRC, there's about 450 local dialects. And they say that the, the uh, other language is English, which is, uh, I'm not sure, because it's, it was traditionally the colonial language was French, because they were Belgium. And then in 2009, Kagame said, today we're English, and everyone had to be taught English. So, it was good because it opened up the West and English-speaking countries to become involved, like us with our HRH program, but it just underscores the fact that not everybody has a, the best English. And like, for example, nurses, very few speak English. And the more educated you are, the more apt your English is to be good. So it limits us somewhat in how we can do our work there because English is not truly uh, spoken that well by most. Um, and Rwanda is bordered in the north by the Congo and, U and Uganda and to the uh, uh, east by um, Tanzania and to the south by Burundi. And when you think of Rwanda, what comes to mind? I think everybody who, who's familiar over the age of 30 would know that Rwanda is where they had the horrible genocide. In 1994, the militant Hutu ethnic groups started slaughtering their neighbors, the Tutsis, as well as modern Hutus. And this went on for 100 days, and 800,000 people were killed in that 100 days, which is more than at any point in World War II. It was massive killing. Um, and the, the killing continued as the RPF, the uh, Rwanda uh, Patriotic Front, which was a, a rebel group um, in Uganda, and the, the, the leader of that, Kagame, is still the president. They, the killing went on to chase down the genocideers in uh, the then DRC in Zaire. So millions were, were literally killed during the, during the genocide, and that pretty much wiped out much of the infrastructure of Rwanda, including their medical system and medical education system, so much um, that in the years leading up to the genocide and for the five years afterwards, Rwanda was perhaps one of the worst places in the world, if not the worst place in the world, to live by many health metrics, such as life expectancy. But then they did an amazing thing, is they started redeveloping their healthcare system and they picked the low-lying fruits. They started, they, they uh, created a rich network of community healthcare workers. These are women from the village with limited education. They trained to go out and treat easily treatable things like uh, malaria, putting up malaria nets, treating pneumonia, um, treating diarrhea, malnutrition. They equipped them to do that. And for example, here you can see how 
um, getting people, children on antiretroviral therapy here going up, the rates of death from AIDS went way, way down over the 10-year period between 2002 and 2012. So they made some major improvements in life expectancy over that 15-year period by picking the low-lying fruit and developing this rich network of um, community health care workers. And they also established uh, a universal health care system that everybody can't get a CT scan, but at least everybody can get basic care and vaccinations. So in 2011, this is what the health care system looked like. All the effort was in here in the community health care workers, and most of the burden of disease was treated here. And if the community health care workers can't take care of it, it gets bumped up to a health center, which is staffed by a nurse. And then if you're really sick, you get to the district hospital, which was staffed by about, this is 42 hospitals staffed by only 400 physicians. And these are generalists. These are people who have gone to medical school for six years and then maybe had a one-year internship, but they didn't have any specialty training. And then that fed into the five referral hospitals, which were only staffed by 150 specialists, meaning internal medicine doctors or general surgeons. And that's for a country of 12 million. So this is where we're at in 2011. We've not completely conquered, but we made big inroads in treating uh, infectious disease. But now we're facing non-communicable diseases. So there really isn't great treatment for heart disease, for kidney disease, for liver disease, for cancer. And how are we going to train these physicians to treat those conditions? And that's where we started to get into the picture. And Kelly's going to take over now and talk about our involvement. There you go. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Rich. No T-Birds? <laughs> now that you all know what that means. Um, and thank you all for coming to hear about um, the HRH program, which really fundamentally is about um, building healthcare capacity by educating the health professions workforce. And you'll start to see perhaps some familiar faces in, in some of these slides as we go forward. Um, so I think Steve's framed the problem really well. There's a critical um, shortage of healthcare workers um, in the early part of this century in, um, in Rwanda. Um, you might have noticed that the last bit he showed on that, the last slide was, um, you know, the, the ratio of healthcare workers to population is about a third of what the WHO said is the minimum standard for a healthcare system. So they needed at least three times as many healthcare professionals as they had. And so the goal of the HRH was to train a large, diverse, and competent healthcare workforce. Um, but you can imagine this is challenging to do, not only um, in a setting where you have very few healthcare workers to begin with, but most of them had really limited education. About 90% of nurses had nothing beyond a high school education. They were identified in high school as being um, uh, capable, competent, and perhaps would be successful in a nursing career, and they were given some technical training and put out into the workforce. Um, there were very, beyond that, there were very few health professionals who had any experience as educators, and the faculty was very limited. Um, and residency programs were really just starting to um, develop after um, the, in the recovery process from the genocide. Um, so starting from a place where there, there weren't health professionals to train more health professionals. And so the AHRH came about um, as an as a, uh, approach to solving this problem. And it's really an innovative approach to, um, to health professional training um, in, the, in global settings. It involves a consortium of U.S. academic institutions, of which Geisel is one, um, that made a commitment to send faculty for two to 12-month contract periods, um, certainly with a hope that some of those individuals would extend their contracts um, year over year. 
Um, and the, the initial plan was a seven-year program. Um, it's, a, it's unique in the funding pathway, which involves funds coming from the U.S. government, from the CDC and PEPFAR, um, being distributed directly to the Rwandan Ministry of Health. And the Rwandan Ministry of Health has um, full responsibility for managing the program and managing those funds, distributing those funds. Um, the funds that go to U.S. schools go directly from the Ministry of Health to um, Geisel and other participating schools. Um, and in the first two years, the Clinton Health Access Initiative uh, provided management support and administrative support and, and really training of the administrators at the Ministry of Health so that they were ready to take over and manage the program going forward, which is, which is important because for long-term success, you need not only the training of the health professionals, but training of managers so that they understand how to, how to run the system. Um, and again, the idea was that after seven years, Rwanda would have human resources gains that would be self-sustaining and no longer need external funding. Um, these are just the initial schools in the consortium. Again, Geisel here on the list. Um, the medical schools, all but Duke, have stayed in the program throughout. Duke made some decisions about the distribution of their global health efforts. Um, but you can see we're in great company. Um, and and I, I will point out, um, we don't have a nursing school, so we're not on the nursing school, the dentistry school, or public health. But important to know that this was a program that was not just training physicians, although our experience is mostly in the physician training realm. So what's unique about this? Why, why is this different? Um, first of all, it's an incredibly highly coordinated approach to workforce development that involved um, an elaborate process to identify nationwide priorities um, and a lot of cooperation between the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education, which is responsible for training uh, health professionals, including the residency programs. Residency programs are degree-granting programs under the University of Rwanda. Um, so needed a lot of coordination there, and, and also an enormous amount of coordination between the Rwandan government and um, participating schools. It took a substantial commitment on the part of um, the U.S. academic institutions with very little um, in the way of um, administrative funding support. So schools agreed to commit to do this with much less than what's usually provided in grant support for administration of the program. Um, and I'll talk more about that commitment in a little bit. It's, I think the two most unique things are the comprehensive nature. So this is not a program to improve the delivery of HIV medications or um, to advance TB treatment or um, to focus on a single disease, you know, to reduce uh, maternal deaths. It's to address every health problem in the country, in the health system, um, across the entire country. Um, and it's also comprehensive in that it wasn't just an effort to improve uh, clinical operations. It was an effort to um, build an academic uh, infrastructure that could be self-sustaining and a, an acknowledgement that administration, both in clinical settings and in educational settings, is key. So all of these things need to be developed for, for the gains to be sustaining. Um, and then the other, I think, major unique aspect is, is what I mentioned before, is that responsibility, control, and accountability all rested entirely with Ru the Rwandan government. So um, the U.S. Um, gave the funds and said, we trust you to do this. Here's the model. We trust you to do this. Um, and that really let Rwanda develop that set of skills um, to be able to, to manage it going forward. And also gave them flexibility with, with um, changing how they use the funds. The initial targets were really very ambitious. So um, at baseline, started with 625 physicians working in the country, and the goal was to nearly double that. 
Um, the goal was to, near, to um, increase the number of specialists, specialists by three to fourfold. And the target um, for specialty training were what, five programs initially, internal medicine, and general surgery, pediatrics, OBGYN, and anesthesiology. And again, those were just priorities that were identified. Um, they could use specialists in every field, absolutely, but those were the highest priorities to, um, to build a core um, structure. And again, because we're a medical school, I'm going to talk mostly about physician training, but um, I do want to point out um, the, the gains in nursing were much more substantial, the, the estimated need. And I want you to imagine working, whatever your role is now as a health professional, in a country with, at the time, about 11 million people and 800 RNs in the entire country. <laughs> and I don't know how many RNs we have in this hospital, but I know the DH system has about twice that many. So <laughs> imagine. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about outcomes. So first, a process outcome. And this is just, could we recruit faculty? You know, was the HRH able to successfully um, bring professionals there to train? And, and the answer was yes, they did. So this um, increase in the first few years and then a decline after that was, was intentional. That was part of the planning. The targets were set to um, you know, serve ramp up initially. And then as people started to graduate, as, as their graduates sort of started to come into the workforce to be able to uh, reduce the number of US professionals, that last um, drop at the end is a little bit more than was anticipated and is a result of a decrease in um, funding from the CDC. So there was a little bit of a taper, a rapid taper at the end, more so than was expected. But these are very near the targets um, in terms of bringing faculty. Um, what did we do? So this is, um, for those of you who don't know, this is Lisa Adams, who went in year one. Um, a big part of the program, obviously, was um, teaching in clinical settings. Um, we taught in didactic settings. This is in at Rwanda Military Hospital, where I was um, stationed for the year I was there, um, and, and both taught and developed curricula uh, and uh, learner assessments and program assessments. Um, and then faculty development was also a key part of the plan. They developed this uh, process called a twinning program. So every US faculty member was linked with a Rwandan faculty member um, with the idea of developing either clinical skills, or hopefully all clinical skills, um, teaching skills, and um, research capacity. And the twinning relationships were variably successful. It would not be fair to say that the faculty development part was easy, in large part because the faculty there, if you think you have little time for faculty development, let me just tell you, <laughs> they had so little time um, to find uh, for, for faculty development. So it was a strain. This was a great example of a successful twinning relationship, and it's really a tripleting relationship because Steve was paired with two folks. And I think he'll talk, talk with you a little bit more about that. Um, so that's sort of what we did. Did we actually increase the workforce? Um, for, for sure, yeah. I'll start just by talking about the total number of doctors. So the number of doctors exceeded the target uh, pretty significantly. And if you look at the first row here, you'll see that it's not a surprise. So in 2011, the medical school, the graduating medical school class was 43. They more than doubled the medical school class after that, um, shortly after the program started. So by 2015, 102 graduates. And then shortly after that, nearly doubled it again. So um, this year, there'll be 185 graduates um, from the University of Rwanda Medical School. Um, so, of course, more doctors are coming out into the field. And, and when people graduate, they have, because it's a, um, a government-funded program, they don't pay 
tuition, they have a commitment to work for five or six years for the government. So they are guaranteed to stay in the workforce um, for at least a period of time. Um, in terms of, and again, I'm only going to talk, I'm going to focus more on internal medicine here and, and more on physicians. If I had all of the other residency programs, the, number, the trends would look very, very similar. Um, but the number of residents increase over time. This year, there will be, uh, or there are 80 residents in the internal medicine training program. Um, and the number of internists, again, imagine working in a country where the entire country has fewer than 10 internists um, of any specialty, generalist, specialist, anything. Um, and now um, there are 100 working. Ah. So this is the Master in Medicine graduates. Again, the residency programs are degree-granting programs at the university, so they're called Master in Medicine. A Master in Medicine can be granted in internal medicine, surgery, anesthesia, peds. So it's, it's, um, this is looking at all graduates of all residency programs, cumulative graduates over time. Um, only four graduates in 2012 of any Rwandan program. That's when the, pro that's when the HRH started, so of course, People weren't graduating. All the programs are four-year programs, and, um, and that's why you can start, start to see that as we get four and five and six years in, the numbers are much higher. Um, I, I want to point out that they didn't quite reach the target, so the number of total graduates hasn't achieved what the initial goal was. Again, those, I think, were incredibly ambitious targets, and I don't want that to detract from what I think is really a successful outcome. Um, about 28% of the total graduates are internal medicine. There have been 85 graduates in total from internal medicine um, during the HRH time span. And um, importantly, uh, a little uh, over a third as of 2016 to 17 had been recruited to the Rwandan faculty because, again, for sustainability, you need not just the clinical workers but edu educators for future, future physicians. This is the first class that graduated from the medicine program in 2016. Um, Pretty great. So this is the first all HRH trained, or trained all within the time period that HRH was there. And some of these spaces may look familiar to those of you who've been here, because um, I'm going to tell you about their experiences here in a little bit. So there were also important academic outputs. Um, more than 80, as of um, 2018, more than 80 collaborative scientific publications, um, collaborations between Rwandan and U.S. faculty or learners. Um, a lot of opportunities for Masters of Medicine students to, to do clinical rotations in the United States, particularly here. Um, the first chief residency program in the internal medicine program. Um, faculty from, the, from Rwanda having invitations to give lectures in the U.S. And then a lot of research presentations at um, regional and international meetings. So success on the academic frame as well. I'm not going to linger on the challenges and lessons learned, but I'm happy to talk about them at the end if people have questions about them, other than to say, of course, there were challenges. It would be disingenuous to say a program is perfect um, from its beginning. Um, but I don't want that to detract from the success of the program. And this really has been seen now as um, an exemplary model. And um, CHAI, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, has been, was approached, has been approached by several other African countries. And, HRH Liberia is now um, getting up and running. HRH Ethiopia is in the planning. I think the key thing to know about those is that they don't look anything like HRH Rwanda because the, way, the reason this was successful is because it was built on what the country needs. And the needs of those, the, the current workforce in those countries, the current shape of the healthcare system is entirely different than Rwanda. So those programs will be very, very different. But the basic funding model stays the same. 
Um, and the other marker SSS, I think, is that um, President Kagame has committed to continuing the work of the HRH, not just continuing the health, the um, workforce gains, but continuing the work of the HRH by continuing to bring faculty over on the Rwandan dollar for at least three more years. Um, I'm going to switch now to talking about Geisel, which, and I'm talking about Geisel because you should all know the great work that has been done here, but, but also um, to help give you a sense of what worked and why it worked. And I think Geisel is a great model um, for that. So our initial commitment was to send three or four physicians per year. We actually sent double that in the first six years of the program. We're now in year seven. Um, Twelve of the individuals that we sent stayed for a year or more, um, which is great. That longer-term commitment, I, I can tell you, is, is really important. Um, and then just speaking about internal medicine, so 14 of uh, the folks that we've sent have been from internal medicine, and I put a little star there because technically Bruce Friedman went under the Harvard umbrella because they owned the cardiology spot that year, but um, he really went, he was recruited by Geisel to go. And I think most importantly, 13 in internal medicine were internally recruited. We sent our own folks, and that was not universally true. Many medical schools sent mostly people that they had recruited, you know, that came from outside the institution. And I think that is one of the things that makes us a standout, and, and the HRH greatly appreciated that. Um, why did that work? Why, why, why were we successful in that way? I think, first and foremost, it was Lisa Adams' commitment. You heard how she managed to get to Steve. <laughs> She's a little sneaky. She, she was really committed to the idea that we're not a recruiting agency, that we're going to have more success if we send people we know, people we know have experience as teachers, people we expect will do well and, and be able to succeed. And that really involves not taking the first person who comes and says, hey, I'd like to do this, but saying, who do we have that we can recruit internally? Um, I think it also really comes down to an extraordinary level of institutional support, both at the Geisel level and, and at, the, at DHMC, although you know, Geisel is the school. DHMC's commitment from the top down uh, to, to have people go from um, the, the um, uh, administrative leadership, the human resources office, absolutely our department chair. I think the reason we were so successful in internal medicine has a lot to do with the guy in the front row. Um, and the support of section chiefs, our colleagues, our staff. This is my big chance to say thank you to everyone who covered for those months and months and months while people were on, and we recognize that's really hard. But um, no one complained. People just said, this is important and we're going to do it. And I think that is a remarkable thing, and we should feel great about being in an institution that does that. And then the other way I think Geisel was really successful is that we said, you know, we've got this for seven years, but we're not in it for seven years. We're in it for the long term, and let's think about how to take what we've done and, and move it forward. Um, this is just all the folks who went from Geisel under the Geisel umbrella. The, the blue are um, internists, either generalists or specialists. The stars are folks who came um, from our own faculty, so recruited from our faculty. We also sent a couple of folks who were fellows here before they went under our under the Geisel umbrella to HRH. And the one internist who didn't have a preceding relationship with our institution is David, who's now an ID fellow. So he came here for his ID fellowship. So we really know all of these folks. Um, we also get a little credit for Tiffany Milner, who was med-ped. So she um, uh, went as a pediatrician, but our department also facilitated her ability to go. And then the other starred folks are folks in other departments who were on our faculty before they went, and also a couple of pediatric 
residents were recruited. So you can see there's very few on here who didn't have a relationship with us before we went. And again, I'm saying this mostly to say this is why Geisel's participation was so successful. Um, so now stuff that's come out of this that I think those partnerships going forward. So we've developed an educational exchange program. We've had many Geisel students who've been able to go and learn and grow and also teach. Um, and especially residents and fellows who've been able to learn and grow and do a lot of teaching. This, these are just the folks from internal medicine who've gone. There have been some from other departments as well. Um, this is Kelly Everhart, a Dartmouth medical student who went early on. Um, there's Will Rosenblatt, a former resident and chief resident who spent a couple months. Um, and for us, the exchange really needed to be reciprocal, needed to be an exchange. So um, these are the f two of the first three um, um, Masters of Medicine students who came over and did clinical rotations with us. In the middle there is Max Fraden, who um, had spent a, a lot of time in Rwanda before he started his residency here, so he was an enormous asset for us in terms of being able to, um, <laughs> to uh, introduce people and actually speak the very, very difficult language that they speak and, and help them to sort of culturally acclimatize. Um, but this was a great, for us, this was really important to bring over the Masters of Medicine students and give them an experience in an academic US medical center. This is our second group. Um, and I, I put them here because I want you to get a sense of how important this work is. So um, this is Menelas. He is now the head of the um, medicine emergency room in the major teaching hospital in Kigali. So he's a couple years out of his residency, and he is in charge of the emergency room. And it is a busy emergency room. Um, and this is Eric, and he's, I think, likely to become the uh, fellowship director for the first GI fellowship in Rwanda. So we've, we've really participated in training leaders. This is, um, we, they also did some, again, cultural acclimatization. They got, this is the Chad uh, half marathon and 5K hero run. So there is a reason for this attire. Um, yeah, and the GI runs shirts, Steve managed to get these guys on the GI runs team. Menelas, about a mile into the 5K, Menelas said to me, Kelly, I don't think we're going to win. <laughs> so you get the personality. <laughs> um, so you know, now they know about fundraising and community engagement. Um, so in total, we've brought over nine um, of the internal medicine graduates, and there are 85 total, so that's more than 10% of graduates of the internal medicine residency program have done some of their training here at our um, small academic medical center, and I think we should feel really great about that. We've also had a couple of visiting faculty come over, the current head of the department, um, and we also had Tim Walker, the former head of the department, come over as the Matthews professor in 2015. This is John Butonzi, who came over in that first group. You probably can't see it very well, but up here is the Geisel logo, because this is research he was working on um, while he was here that we've put together, and he um, was able to present at, a, at an African cancer conference. Um, and I know he's been really engaged in the oncology program, so that's a great opportunity for me to pass off to Mary. This is press that to advance. That's, yeah, that's, that's right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? So um, you may wonder why a program that was designed for primary care got involved in oncology. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Partners in Health uh, is an NGO that focuses on health care for the poor. And they 
came into Rwanda in 2005, so 10 years or so after the genocide, and built this um, new district hospital in 2012. And they already had their finger on the pulse of this tidal wave of NCD issues that Steve mentioned that was headed to uh, Rwanda and was going to need attention. So they'd already noticed that by 2012, 28 million of the 38 million deaths from non-communicable diseases was occurring in low- and middle-income countries. And if you think about specifically oncology, uh, Globocan is a huge database of oncology um, statistics around the world. And Africa is the red zone, as you can see, which is the highest mortality rate from oncology in people under 70. So considered premature mortality from oncology. And they also were kind of realizing that um, the same concepts that, that Partners in Health used for HIV may actually apply for oncology cases. This is just to give you a sense of the types of cancers that are being diagnosed in Rwanda currently. This Global Can estimates about 10,000 cases per year. 12% of those are cervical, 11% breast cancer, 8% colorectal, 7% stomach, and 7% liver, and 55% other, which are hematologic and pediatric cases. And you also have to realize these are going to be entirely skewed by who actually seeks medical care and gets diagno diagnosed. And one other way to illustrate the differences in the resources is to look at incidence versus mortality. And in the U.S., say 100 people get diagnosed, about 38 are going to die in that same year. In Rwanda, out of 100 people who are diagnosed, there's 70% death rates for, from oncology. So huge, broad um, range of different, different outcomes. So when I went, I, my involvement actually started with Lisa Adams as well, because she came and gave a grand rounds on her uh, experience with Laura Chevy, and they had spent a year there. And after grand rounds, I went up to her and asked her, you know, did they want an oncologist? And, and she said, well, let me check. And they did. So I arranged to go for two months in 2015. And again, thank you for my colleagues who covered. And as most of these experiences do, we start out on the rounds in internal medicine. And lots of learners, lots of medical students and nurses surrounding these patients in their beds, where they bring their own bedding, they bring their own food, they bring their own families to help take care of them while they're in the hospital. You'll also notice the green curtains, which I believe, rumor has it, is Steve's doing to allow for more privacy, and um, although it's hard to use them when there's so many people around the bed. <laughs> but you'll see a theme of green throughout these um, pictures. So the other thing I noticed soon after arriving there is that most of the cancer patients get shipped somewhere else, and that's pretty much what, where I will go with this part of, my, part of the talk. But for that reason, there weren't a lot of cancer patients to teach with, so I did a lot of teaching in the lecture style. And they were being telecast simultaneously in the other campus of southern, in southern um, Rwanda. So once a week... Dr. Brackett and I went to the Ministry of Health in the capital and set up our, our didactic lecture series on oncology. We also were able to create the first pathology rounds for residents to come in and look at a double-headed scope or multi-headed scope, and they had never really seen that as part of their training, so the, the pathology department was thrilled to have us rounding through there. 
I gave some specialized lectures on targeted therapies to some of the doctors at the um, private hospital called King Faisal and introduced concepts of palliative care using a guy I ran into, a psychologist at, at um, the University of Rwanda who spoke their language and really got them talking about end-of-life discussions in a really important way that hadn't been addressed before. And I learned the, the, <laughs> the value of balance, and we would teach a little, tea a little, and then go back into the wards. And it was a really nice time to interact with our colleagues. So where the cancer patients were was way up here in this northern part of the country. So Kigali is in the center, and this area up here is where Partners in Health and, Dar and um, Harvard Medical School and the Ministry of Health of Rwanda decided to build their cancer hospital. And largely that's because of the Partners in Health mission to care for the poor and the, to care, provide care for the ones who have the least access. The setting is absolutely spectacular, uh, but very, very rural, and subsistence farmers all around. It takes about three hours to get up there from the capital. Half of that time is on very dirt roads that are generally um, sometimes difficult to pass. So in Mubuzima is the Kenya Rwanda name for Partners in Health, and this shows the sprawling campus of this new hospital. It's a district hospital, but also one that was focused on um, addressing cancer care. They started in 2012 with 500 adult patients and 50 pediatric patients. By 2015, that grew to 1,200 and, and 103, and now there's 1,700 cases per year. And the focus is on curable cancers. So they don't take everybody, but they really focus on cervical cancer, breast cancer, pediatric cancers, and leukemias, which again is going to go back to those statistics I gave you at the beginning. There's a reason why those are being diagnosed more often, because they actually can treat them. So when I was there for the, f the first two months, I was able to arrange a visit up to Butaro just for one day. But I realized that that's where the action is in terms of oncology. So when I got back, I um, also was happened to take over the fellowship program for hematology oncology and thought, well, Maybe we can combine these two. Let's create an elective where our fellows can go and spend a month learning about oncology in, in low-resource settings. And I was able to get funding through the Norris Cotton Cancer Center under directorship of Dr. Israel at that time, and now um, renewed by Dr. Leach, to send two teams per year, one fellow and two faculty members, and essentially working with the team on the ground, so they don't have oncologists there. They have internal medicine doctors and general practitioners who are providing all the cancer care. So when we're there, we're really doing side-by-side, -side, bedside teaching, lecturing uh, somewhat formally once a week, but daily side-by-side -side, inpatient and outpatient rounds discussing chemotherapy, toxicities, how do you assess response to treatment, and prevent, you know, complications. And because it's so far away from the capital, everybody's getting driven up there for the week and, and left. <laughs> so you're there 24-7, and you're talking about things over every meal, walking down toward the hospital, um, very little real time off. But great interactions, because we're all living and eating together every day. Um, so... Incredible learning exchange, which I'll talk a little bit more about, 
and career enhancement for our faculty. We, we, it's a great break from Dartmouth-Hitchcock, no offense, <laughs> but really inspiring, and you kind of come back energized. And it gives us the opportunity to mentor our next generation of doctors to have a global perspective. So our first fellow who went with us is Christiana Costa, who many of you may know. She completed her fellowship in 2017. She's now on faculty at Duke. And she jumped in on the, at the opportunity and was part of our first team. So she's standing outside the, the doctor's quarters, which overlooks the subsistence farmers. And she was so happy, she was so thrilled with herself at being able to teach, and it was really nice to see that um, so quickly kind of she developed into a teacher and gave great lectures on hematology, CML, multiple myeloma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and some case reports on mycosis fungoides that resulted in posters for international meetings. Addie Hill was our second uh, participant. She wasn't quite a fellow. I didn't have a fellow who was able to go internally, so I reached out to the residents who were going into Hemonc, and she was able to go. And now she's a fellow at UCLA in Hemonc. But here she is giving a lecture on neutropenic fever and trying to explain how to care for neutropenic fever patients when you can't get, when there's no microbiology lab. You cannot get blood cultures, you can't get urine cultures. You have to kind of work with the clinical scenario to best assess what's going on. And similarly, if you're talking about tumor lysis syndrome, how do you diagnose that if you don't have electrolytes? So there's no way to test potassium. You, can't, you can check a creatinine, but it's almost, it usually takes a couple days to get the result. So she was learning a lot from them about how, how do you do this clinically when you don't have the tools that you're so used to having. And every lecture would be a, a really interesting dialogue. So we worked also side by side with biopsies and pathology specimens to optimize diagnosis and introduced the idea of um, chart reviews and group case reports and, and discussions among the staff. So we're really the only um, HEMONC program that has this elective opportunity. So there were times when I didn't have any internal fellows, but I was able to reach out to other institutions and get fellows to come with us. And one was from UVM and in our third team, and one from UCSF, uh, Becky DeBoer, in our fourth team. And as fellowship director in general, we also are getting interesting candidates interested in coming here because of this program. So it's really helping to network around the country. And we're broadening our faculty involvement. Um, our second team uh, included Eric Lance again and Tom Davis in medical oncology. We had a breast oncologist from Ottawa come with us, and now the disciplines are broadening into general surgery, gynonc, ENT, and radiology for future teams. How are we doing on time? So um, the educational exchange I already talked about somewhat. We were heavily involved, and still are, in developing the national treatment protocols for the Ministry of Health of Rwanda. And the, the Butaro Cancer Center started developing these treatment protocols to assist the non-oncologists to be able to care for patients. And we've fine-tuned them as best we can, and now they're getting kind of adopted into the national healthcare system. Uh, we brought a couple of people back here to rotate through our HEMONC department for a month last year. 
We have, we've had our own pathologists as well as Rwandan pathologists getting involved in international consulting to help develop pathology uh, capacity in other countries. And several of us are now on the ASCO committee to develop guidelines for cancer management in low resource settings. And for me, it really, what gets, what is so intriguing is the, just the challenge of how do you synthesize the amount of training we have into a few, a few sharp tools when you only have a, a, a limited amount to choose from and trying to teach that to people who don't, who aren't trained in oncology. I mean, it's just a really interesting exercise and always very challenging. Radiation priorities is another big dilemma because the, there is no radiation in Rwanda specifically. So Partners in Health sponsors six people per year or per month to go to Nairobi. So every time we're there, we're asked to help decide who's going to go. And it's just, it's excruciating to have to decide between a 35-year-old with stage 2B cervical, a 2-year-old with Wilms tumor, a 50-year-old with curable head and neck cancer, and there's always a waiting list of over 100 patients. So very difficult dilemmas. Radiation is now coming to Rwanda and is opening soon. So we find the elective to really be a multi-directional learning paradigm for the Rwandan staff, for the Dartmouth physicians, all working together and learning from each other to improve the healthcare for the Rwandan uh, cancer patients. It is becoming an academic discipline in and of itself because the, the issues are so unique and different from kind of standard training and standard education. And it's really rewarding to involve the Rwandans to bring them to the international conferences, to sponsor them to come to Chicago or to um, Mozambique or wherever the next conference is. And it's broadening in its appeal to the younger generation as well. We have ongoing things that we have, we're doing. Um, every week we're on the phone and on the computer using Zoom to review cases and consult and advise in terms of um, difficult cancer management issues. We've also had ongoing relationships with the residents to help with their thesis and their degrees by bringing tissue back here and getting some pilot funds to do analysis such as next generation sequencing, uh, methylation assays, and proteomics. We've had the opportunity to sponsor some medical students to go here during their gap year. Uh, Brendan Barth is not quite a student yet, but he will be starting Geisel next year. And we, Steve and I, sponsored him to spend three months there. He was very prolific in his journaling, which was great, because I always asked my fellows to do that, and they never had time. So <laughs> he, um, he sent some really nice reports back just saying his experience was nothing short of incredible. He was able to go because of a Dartmouth Alumni Fellowship. He says, I've seen all sorts of crazy stuff and diseases while shadowing a 48-year-old with swelling and muscular pain, a case of echinococcus granulosis, transverse myelitis, cryptococcal meningitis, as well as the usual stuff. So he really, um, really shined there and had a great time. I also um, appreciate the fact that the Cancer Center recognizes this as, as a good research opportunity for our resources to join in with their resources of, of rare types of cancers and tissues. 
So I was given a um, friend scholarship through the Norris Cotton Cancer Center to start some tissue-based research projects and get some pilot data. And finally, the next um, big step is we are, as a university, we're joining Project ECHO, which is an international program of extension for community health outcomes using a telementoring platform, kind of Zoom-like, to increase capacity in low-resource settings through the use of technology. And through, through this, we will go and create teaching modules uh, that I think will dovetail nicely with Steve's work in GI and oncology care in other settings where Dartmouth has had long-term relationships already, and how do we get that into a, a teaching module that can be used in multiple places. So several of us are going down to Houston in May to get trained for that. And thank you very much to the Department of Medicine for their funding and support of this important um, initiative. And with that, I will turn it back over to Steve. I'll try and go through some of these slides. I'll skip through so we can end on time. But uh, as Kelly said, uh, for me, th this twinning model where you're paired with somebody you're supposed to mentor was the most amazing experience of my whole time in involvement for the past five years. So Vincent, who I was supposed to mentor, maybe I taught him a few things in GI and training, but he taught me much more about life in terms of his commitment, his dedication to his patients, to his students, and his resilience, his life story. It's just amazing how he came back from training in Minsk and Russia to come right, walk right into the beginnings of the genocide and then work in refugee camps for years afterwards. So his life experience has taught me a lot about resiliency and, and keeping on going. So the first thing when you get to Rwanda is you get blown away. It's, from a medicine standpoint, it's just fascinating. It's tragic, but it's fascinating. So I'm a gastroenterologist. I go on rounds, focus on the belly. What's the first thing you teach your medical students? Or your medical student what, what, for on physical exam. What's the first thing you do? Auscultate. You observe. So observe. What do you see? There's this huge swollen belly on the on the left here or on the right here. In our setting, it could be. We look. It's probably ascites. We'll do some physical exam maneuvers to check it out. But it's, it could be portal hypertension and sesamoid disease. It could be cancer and maybe other things in Rwanda. It could be all those things. But also, it could be end stage cardiac disease. It could be tuberculosis, and we don't have the, the albumin in the ascites to detect, make the difference. It's very difficult. What about this one in the middle here? What's this? Maybe not quite as sick, but if you look carefully, there's a huge asymmetry to that abdomen. Remember that you know, in the physical exam, they teach you that you examine the spleen from the bottom going up because you might miss the spleen tip because sometimes it can extend all the way to that crest. Well, all those physical exam things we teach and we hear about, they're actually all true. It's just the patient has to present at the end stage. And then on the right, on the last one here, this is a guy who came in because he had these varicose veins in his leg, and he's some mentalist in the outpatient clinic. And it, we, opened, we examined him, and he has this huge caput medusa because he had thrombosis portal vein when he was a child. And that caput medusa, the biggest I've ever seen, has been there forever. So this is sort of the kind of medicine you see in advanced stage. And if I felt uncomfortable with my internal medicine skills, there was a place I could hide and feel more useful than the endoscopy suite. <laughs> um, there are a few internists doing uh, upper endoscopy predominantly in, in Rwanda, Vincent being one of them, and that's where we were paired. And here's Vincent in the district hospital up in Rungeri, which is at the base of the Virunga 14,000-foot volcano. So it's where the, the uh, mountain gorillas are. And he's training a GP from the Congo and doing upper endoscopy. And for your old-timers, maybe recognize this scope. That's the old fiber optic scopes we had back in the 70s and 80s. And they have one up there that still functions. So he's training her how to do diagnostic upper endoscopy. 
In the corner over there, I've brought over a number of fellows now. Christina here, Susie Luck, Zilla was our first fellow to go. And she's training Benoit in this complicated procedure called a colonoscopy polypectomy of a polyp. And she's drawing a crowd to do that. Um, so there was a big, there's a big need for advancing GI and, and all the subspecialties in, in Rwanda. Um, and uh, it listed here. So Vincent uh, and Tim Walker and I and a group got together and said, how can we meet these needs? And the goal really was to develop a GI fellowship training program. And one of the ways to do that was to open access sites to some centers of excellence in Africa where, where we could send our, our internal medicine residents who wanted some training in Africa. And to do that, to access these World Gastroenterologic Organization sites, you had to have a society. So because of that, we formed the Rwanda Endoscopy Society. So we formed that. We sent a few people up there. And then after a year, I said, Vincent, we have a society. We need to do something with it. And he says, sure, we'll, we'll have endoscopy week. I said, well, great, Vincent. What's endoscopy week? He goes, well, you get a bunch of doctors and nurses and bring them to Rwanda, and we'll have endoscopy week. And so this was the contribution from Dartmouth of all the people who I've recruited and who have come to me and want to go to Rwanda that we've brought. We've had Ben Saul, biomedical engineer. We've had nurses. We've had doctors go over in the past two years. And what endoscopy week is is a collaboration. It's, it's the Rwandans' idea and they're kind of running the show, and we're brought along to support that, is to provide service, to provide training, to advance endoscopy, and also to increase awareness of the GI burden of disease. So here's Vincent. He spent some time here, so you can see he loves his Dan and Witch shirt and his Dartmouth pants. And we bring a lot of equipment over, so my office is basically a warehouse now, and I get a lot of donations of cons consumables, biopsy forceps and things, and we bring them over, and Vincent spits us up into four teams. We go to Gisene. We go down to Batari, and we have two teams in Kigali, teams of both Rwandan uh, nurses and doctors and then the people we bring over. And here's the most remote site in Gisenyi. And as you can see, some Belgian doctors donated some old Fujinon equipment that sets, sits there. No one uses it because nobody who can use it. Well, we went up. Andy Robinson, local uh, private guy, um, went up with us, uh, trained at Dartmouth, and he trained two physicians over the past two years to do endoscopy. So now they're doing endoscopy routinely up in this remote district hospital in Gisene. Um, sedation, people ask me, how do we sedate? There's no sedation. There's a lot of hand-holding um, of the patients, and they're so stoic. We work very carefully and closely. They're long hours and strong uh, friendships form. This is Lola, who is our tech and now PA student with one of the nurses in Gisene, who's very happy now because her patients are getting cared for with endoscopy and consultation. And then uh, physicians who already have some skills, like Barnaby, who came here, we are advancing their therapeutic um, skills. And in, in, uh, here we're doing band ligation. Um, we're, we do a lot of teaching. Here's a flipped classroom. Um, and we're very dependent upon our, 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 our equipment. And our doctors were not good at fixing it or, or, uh, or, um, or making it run. And you can imagine the equipment over there breaks down readily. So one guy, Ben Salt, who's here, he was very, very helpful in me getting the stuff I was bringing over fixed. And I would say, Ben, you should come with us sometime. And then literally, like two weeks before, he goes, I think I'll come this time. So he came. And uh, I'll tell you, he was the MVP of the first trip because you can imagine when there's a, somebody could fix something on site, he did more good than any of us could have done. He's fixing incubators, he's fixing respirators, he's fixing down all these broken things that, he can, that can be fixed. So we decided biomedical engineers is something we really need to include on our trips when we go. And then we noticed that they had this uh, C-arm, which is the fluoro unit you can use in the OR. So Ben um, set it up that we could do ERCPs, which had never been done in Rwanda and maybe most of East Africa. 
And we had Stu Gordon, who's one of the top ERCPs really in the country, come along with an advanced team. And here you can see Stuart doing the first ERCP in Rwanda. That's the first cannulation of a bile duct ever in the country. He's drawing a crowd in the operative theater. <laughs> Everybody wants to see this technique. Vincent's good at publicizing. He's on the news. Kalani, one of the internists there who was here, he fell out of his barber's chair when he saw Stuart and Vincent on the news. And so the first year we did a team of 12 from Brigham and here. We did a bunch of EGDs. Andy Robinson did 70 up in Gisenyi with the gastroscope and a colonoscope. Um, and we had five ERCPs, and we had one complication, um, and that's Stuart uh, with the complication. Do you want to just say briefly what happened with that surgeon there? Uh, yeah, that doesn't take too much time. We, we did five ERCPs, um, which was a real undertaking. The first four went fairly well. The fifth one began, I think, around 10 o'clock at night. And I, I was assuming that they would say, let's just skip the last one. But they were very enthusiastic to keep going. So we, the last case, unfortunately, had a middle-aged man with a, probably a cholangia carcinoma. And we had the, the, uh, problem, the C-arm that we used was very difficult to see and so forth. But we, we did this case, and then it quickly became apparent that when we placed the stent, that, perforated the bile duct, and by now it's about midnight, and there were very few people left in the room. And the surgeon that was backing us up was, was asleep in the corner of the room, and I had the sinking feeling that there was nothing we could do for this poor man with a complication such as that. And I, I woke up the surgeon, and I, I fully expected him to say, there's nothing I can do for him, but, but he quickly um, rose to attention. He went down the hall, he wheeled in a surgical cart, the technician that did the fluoroscopy became his surgical assistant, and the two of them did this incredible uh, surgery. They did a laparotomy with one light bulb in the, the other lights didn't work. So he's basically in the dark, and he dissected down the duodenum. He um, identified this little perforation. I, I used my iPhone light to shine into the field so he could show me where the perforation was, and that's a picture, for, I think, from my iPhone. And, and he repaired this thing, and he did a surgical bypass. And, and I, I was just amazed at his surgical skill. And, and he did all this with, with really no assistance. The anesthesiologist had actually gone home, so they had a, a technician running the, the down there. And the next morning, I came in. I, I expected the patient was going to be an extremist. Or, I mean, and I walked in. He was in one of those wards, sitting up in bed. So, so anyway, the point of telling the story is that we work as a team, and we had really good surgical backup. The next year we went back, I published an article, we recruited a bunch more people, we team of 22. We, we had two anesthesia, uh, Ying Lo and Lisa Rubenberg from anesthesia came, did a two-day consultation course. We were doing conscious sedation there. We had, did 440 procedures. And then we went back, and Dr. Anton calls me, and we're back in town, and he, and he says to the patient that Stuart is still alive. We're like, There's no way. So he brings him back. He's in pink here, so I can see I'm doubting Thomas. The pink means he's a prisoner, and I have to be, like, doubting. I have to see the wound to make sure it's the right guy. So a year later, he's still alive. He put on 25 pounds. He had hepaticojejunostomy, a surgery here that we'd send to, to, to a liver transplant surgeon. So the guy has cholangio. I've seen the, the biopsy from uh, Butaro. No, ke no chemo available because we don't even have that here. But he's doing well after this. And it just shows it's a collaborative effort, and we work together as a team. That was our group this year that went after the two-day conference. Um, 
And so we're really close. We, we've got all the approval for the, for the fellowship. Um, we're ready to go. We, we have the, it's being put to the Senate, and we think we should be able to start our GI fellowship program uh, in, the, um, in, the, uh, in the spring. And so I'm going to include, and the, 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 one, the first conclusion is that I think Kelly showed quite nicely this HRH program has enabled us to, to transfer a knowledge skills uh, uh, in terms of educating more doctors on a macro level. On a micro level, we've transferred tech, surgical technique and endoscopic technique. And, and uh, here's an example of Dr. Vincent sent me this picture after endoscopy week. He had pulled this two-inch nail out of a three-year-old boy. That was something that you could easily teach somebody who's diagnostic endoscopy how to do that therapeutically if you teach them or train them and also give them the right tools, in this case, a polypectomy snare. So that's the first conclusion. The second conclusion, as I think Mary is getting into and Kelly, it's been incredibly rewarding for us to be involved, um, and it opens our eyes to, to what's out there. And, you know, when I'm up there saving lives one pop at a time in the endoscopy unit, it helps me keep things in focus, and not to diminish what we're doing here, but it does, you know, we talk about uh, physician burnout, and this is sort of my antidote for that, to keep going. And I think that all, and one of my great pleasures is bringing people over there and seeing their eyes be open too, and being involved in this, this bigger mission. And then the third conclusion is that we really have established amazing relationships, both on a personal level and also on an institutional level. So this is Jean-Pierre, who was the first Rwandan to come here in 2013. He trained in ECHO with Bruce Andrus. There he is in my house with, with my son's hockey uh, jacket and my wife. And there I'm in his house a couple years later with his son. And you can see that the, the influence Dartmouth has had, I think, on the future of the, the medical system in Rwanda. So that's the, the, the final conclusion of the relationships we've built, both personally and institutionally. So last slide, a Rwandan proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I'm sorry you went over. If you have a quick question, we can answer that. Thank you. Thank you. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Come up and ask questions. Yeah, sorry, you went over. We'll let you get on to other.